The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 7 The Purple Wig. Mr. Edward Nutt, the industrious editor of the Daily Reformer, sat at his desk, opening letters and marking proofs to the merry tune of a typewriter, worked by a vigorous young lady. He was a stoutish, fair man in his shirt-sleeves. His movements were resolute, his mouth firm, and his tones final. But his round, rather babyish blue eyes had a bewildered and even wistful look that rather contradicted all this. Nor, indeed, was the expression altogether misleading. It might truly be said of him, as for many journalists in authority, that his most familiar emotion was one of continuous fear. Fear of libel actions, fear of lost advertisements, fear of misprints, fear of the sack. His life was a series of distracted compromises between the proprietor of the paper and of him, who was a senile soap-boiler with three ineradicable mistakes in his mind, and the very able staff he had collected to run the paper, some of whom were brilliant and experienced men and, what was even worse, sincere enthusiasts for the political policy of the paper. A letter from one of these lay immediately before him, and, rapid and resolute as he was, he seemed almost to hesitate before opening it. He took up a strip of proof instead, ran down it with a blue eye and a blue pencil, altered the word adultery to the word impropriety, and the word Jew to the word alien, rang a bell and sent it flying upstairs. Then, with a more thoughtful eye, he ripped open the letter from his more distinguished contributor, which bore a postmark of Devonshire, and read as follows. Dear Nutt, as I see you're working spooks and dukes at the same time, what about an article on that rum business of the heirs of Exmoor, or, as the old women call it down here, the devil's ear of air? The head of the family, you know, is the Duke of Exmoor. He is one of a few really stiff old Tory aristocrats left. A sound old crusted tyrant it is quite in our line to make trouble about. And I think I'm on the track of a story that will make trouble. Of course, I don't believe in the old legend about James I. And as for you, you don't believe in anything, not even in journalism. The legend, you'll probably remember, was about the blackest business in English history. The poisoning of Overbury by that witch's cat Francis Howard and the quite mysterious terror which forced the king to pardon the murderers. There was a lot of alleged witchcraft mixed up with it, and the story goes that a manservant listening at the keyhole heard the truth in a talk between the king and Carr, and the bodily ear with which he heard grew large and monstrous, as by magic, so awful was the secret. And though he had to be loaded with lands and gold and made an ancestor of dukes, the elf-shaped ear is still recurrent in the family. Well, you don't believe in black magic, and if you did, you couldn't use it for copy. If a miracle happened in your office, you'd have to hush it up. Now so many bishops are agnostics. But that's not the point. The point is that there really is something queer about Exmoor and his family. Something quite natural, I dare say, but quite abnormal. And the ear is in it somehow, I fancy, either a symbol or a delusion or a disease or something. Another tradition says that cavaliers just after James I began to wear their hair long only to cover the ear of the first Lord Exmoor. 
this is also no doubt fanciful. The reason I point it out to you is this. It seems to me that we make a mistake in attacking aristocracy entirely for its champagne and diamonds. Most men rather admire the knobs for having a good time, but I think we surrender too much when we admit that aristocracy has made even the aristocrats happy. I suggest a series of articles pointing out how dreary, how inhuman, how downright diabolist is the very smell and atmosphere of some of these great houses. There are plenty of instances, but you couldn't begin with a better one than the ear of the heirs. By the end of the week, I think I can get you the truth about it. Yours ever, Francis Finn. Mr. Nutt reflected a moment, staring at his left boot. Then he called out in a strong, loud, and entirely lifeless voice, in which every syllable sounded alike, Miss Barlow, take down a letter to Mr. Finn, please. Dear Finn, I think it would do. Copy should reach us second post Saturday. Yours, E. Nutt. This elaborate epistle he articulated as if it were all one word, and Miss Barlow rattled it down as if it were all one word. Then he took up another strip of proof, and a blue pencil, and altered the word supernatural to the word marvellous, and the expression shoot down to the expression repress. In such happy, healthful activities did Mr. Nutt disport himself, until the ensuing Saturday found him at the same desk, dictating to the same typist, and using the same blue pencil on the first instalment of Mr. Finn's revelations. The opening was a sound piece of slashing invective about the evil secrets of princes, and despair in the high places of the earth. Though written violently, it was in excellent English but the editor, as usual, had given to somebody else the task of breaking it up into subheadings, which were of a spicier sort, as Pieress and Poisons, and The Eerie Ear, and The Airs in Their Eerie, and so on, through a hundred happy changes. Then followed the legend of the ear, amplified from Finn's first letter, and then the substance of his later discoveries, as follows. I know it is the practice of journalists to put the end of the story at the beginning and call it a headline. I know that journalism largely consists in saying Lord Jones dead to people who never knew that Lord Jones was alive. Your present correspondent thinks that this, like many other journalistic customs, is bad journalism, and that the Daily Reformer has to set a better example in such things. He proposes to tell his story as it occurred, step by step. He will use the real names of the parties, who, in most cases, are ready to confirm his testimony. As for the headlines, the sensational proclamations, they will come at the end. I was walking along a public path that leads through a private Devonshire orchard, and seems to point towards Devonshire cider, when I came suddenly upon just such a place as the path suggested. It was a long, low inn consisting really of a cottage and two barns, thatched all over with a thatch that looks like brown and grey hair grown before history. But outside the door was a sign which called it the Blue Dragon, and under the sign was one of those long rustic tables that used to stand outside most of the free English inns before teetotalers and brewers between them destroyed freedom. And at this table sat three gentlemen, who might have lived a hundred years ago. 
Now that I know them all better, there is no difficulty about disentangling the impressions, but just then they looked like three very solid ghosts. A dominant figure, both because he was bigger in all three dimensions, and because he sat centrally in the length of the table, facing me, was a tall, fat man, dressed completely in black, with a rubicund, even apoplectic visage, but a rather bald and rather bothered brow. Looking at him again, more strictly, I could not exactly say what it was that gave me the sense of antiquity, except the antique cut of his white clerical necktie and the barred wrinkles across his brow. It was even less easy to fix the impression in the case of the man at the right end of the table, who, to say truth, was as commonplace a person as could be seen anywhere, with a round, brown-haired head and a round, stub nose, but also clad in clerical black, of a stricter cut. It was only when I saw his broad, curved hat lying on the table beside him that I realised why I connected him with anything ancient. He was a Roman Catholic priest. Perhaps the third man, at the other end of the table, had really more to do with it than the rest, though he was both slighter in physical presence and more inconsiderate in dress. His lank limbs were clad, I might also say clutched, in very tight grey sleeves and pantaloons. He had a long, sallow, aquiline face, which seemed somehow all the more saturnine because his lantern jaws were imprisoned in his collar and neckcloth, more in the style of the old stock, and his hair, which ought to have been dark brown, was of an odd, dim, russet colour which, in conjunction with his yellow face, looked rather purple than red. The unobtrusive yet unusual colour was all the more notable because his hair was almost unnaturally healthy and curling, and he wore it full. But, after all analysis, I inclined to think that what gave me my first old-fashioned impression was simply a set of tall, old-fashioned wine-glasses, one or two lemons, and two church-warden pipes, and also perhaps the old-world errand on which I had come. Being a hardened reporter, and it being apparently a public inn, I did not need to summon much of my impudence to sit down at the long table and order some cider. The big man in black seemed very learned, especially about local antiquities. The small man in black, though he talked much less, surprised me with a yet wider culture. So we got on very well together. But the third man, the old gentleman in the tight pantaloons, seemed rather distant and haughty, until I slid into the subject of the Duke of Exmoor and his ancestry. I thought the subject seemed to embarrass the other two a little, but it broke the spell of the third man's silence most successfully. Speaking with restraint, and with the accent of a highly educated gentleman, and puffing at intervals at his long church-warden pipe, he proceeded to tell me some of the most horrible stories I have ever heard in my life. How one of the heirs in the former ages had hanged his own father, and another had his wife scourged at the cart-tail through the village, and another had set fire to a church full of children, and so on. Some of the tales, indeed, are not fit for public print, such as the story of the scarlet nuns, the abominable story of the spotted dog, or the thing that was done in the quarry. And all this red doll of impieties came from thin, genteel lips rather primly than otherwise, as he sat sipping the wine out of his tall, thin glass. I could see that the man opposite me was trying, if anything, to stop him, but he evidently held the old gentleman in considerable respect, 
and could not venture to do so at all abruptly. And the little priest at the other end of the table, though free from any such air of embarrassment, looked steadily at the table, and seemed to listen to the recital with great pain, as well he might. "'You don't seem,' I said to the narrator, "'to be very fond of the Exmoor pedigree.' He looked at me a moment, his lips still prim, but whitening and tightening. Then he deliberately broke his long pipe and glass on the table, and stood up, the very picture of a perfect gentleman, with the framing temper of a fiend. "'These gentlemen,' he said, "'will tell you whether I have cause to like it. The curse of the heirs of old has lain heavy on this country, and many have suffered from it. They know there are none who have suffered from it as I have.' and with that he crushed a piece of the fallen glass under his heel, and strode away among the green twilight of the twinkling apple-trees. "'That's an extraordinary old gentleman,' I said to the other two. "'Do you happen to know what the Exmoor family has done to him? Who is he?' The big man in black was staring at me with the wild air of a baffled bull. He did not at first seem to take it in. Then he said at last, "'Don't you know who he is?' I reaffirmed my ignorance, and there was another silence. Then the little priest said, still looking at the table, "'That's the Duke of Exmoor.' Then, before I could collect my scattered senses, he added, equally quietly, but with an air of regularising things, "'My friend here is Dr. Mull, the Duke's librarian. My name is Brown.' "'But,' I stammered, "'if that is the Duke, why does he damn all the old Dukes like that?' He seems really to believe, answered the priest called Brown, that they have left a curse on him. Then he added with some irrelevance, that's why he wears a wig. It was a few moments before his meaning dawned on me. You don't mean that fable about the fantastic ear, I demanded. I've heard it, of course, but surely it must be a superstitious yarn spun out of something much simpler. I've sometimes thought it was a wild version of one of those mutilation stories. They used to crop criminals' ears in the sixteenth century. "'I hardly think it was that,' answered the little man thoughtfully. "'But it is not outside ordinary science or natural law for a family to have some deformity frequently reappearing, such as one ear bigger than the other.' The big librarian had buried his bald brow in his big red hands, like a man trying to think out his duty. "'No,' he groaned, "'you do the man a wrong after all understand I've no reason to defend him, or even keep faith with him. He has been a tyrant to me, as to everybody else. Don't fancy, because you see him sitting here, that he isn't a great lord in the worst sense of the word. He would fetch a man a mile to ring a bell a yard off, if it would summon another man three miles to fetch a matchbox three yards off. He must have a footman to carry his walking-stick, a body-servant to hold up his opera-glasses, but not a valet to brush his clothes, cut in the priest, with a curious dryness, for the valet would want to brush his wig, too. The librarian turned to him, and seemed to forget my presence. He was strongly moved, and, I think, a little heated with wine. "'I don't know how you know it, Father Brown,' he said, "'but you're right. He lets the whole world do everything for him, except dress him. And that he insists on doing in a literal solitude like a desert.' Anybody is kicked out of the house without a character who is so much as found near his dressing-room door. "'He seems a pleasant old party,' I remarked. 
"'No,' replied Dr. Mull quite simply, "'and yet that is just what I mean by saying you are unjust to him after all. "'Gentlemen, the Duke does really feel the bitterness about the curse that he uttered just now. "'He does with sincere shame and terror hide under that purple wig "'something he thinks it would blast the sons of man to see. "'I know it is so, and I know it is not a mere natural disfigurement "'like a criminal mutilation, or a hereditary disproportion in the features. "'I know it is worse than that.' because a man told me he was present at a scene that no man could invent, where a stronger man than any of us tried to defy the secret, and was scared away from it. I opened my mouth to speak, but Mull went on in oblivion of me, speaking out of the cavern of his hands. I don't mind telling you, father, because it's really more defending the poor duke than giving him away. Didn't you ever hear of the time when he very nearly lost all his estates? The priest shook his head, and the librarian proceeded to tell the tale as he had heard it from his predecessor in the same post, who had been his patron and instructor, and whom he seemed to trust implicitly. Up to a certain point it was a common enough tale of the decline of a great family's fortunes, the tale of a family lawyer. His lawyer, however, had the sense to cheat honestly, if the expression explains itself. Instead of using funds he held in trust, he took advantage of the Duke's carelessness to put the family in a financial hole, in which it might be necessary for the Duke to let him hold them in reality. The lawyer's name was Isaac Green, but the Duke always called him Elisha, presumably in reference to the fact that he was quite bald, though certainly not more than thirty. He had risen very rapidly, but from very dirty beginnings, being at first a narc or informer, and then a money-lender but as a solicitor to the heirs he had the sense, as I say, to keep technically straight until he was ready to deal the final blow. The blow fell at dinner, and the old librarian said he should never forget the very look of the lampshades and the decanters, as the little lawyer, with a steady smile, proposed to the great landlord that they should halve the estates between them. The sequel certainly could not be overlooked, for the Duke, in dead silence, smashed a decanter on the man's bald head as suddenly as I had seen him smash the glass that day in the orchard. It left a red triangular scar on the scalp, and the lawyer's eyes altered, but not his smile. He rose, tottering to his feet, and struck back as such men do strike. I'm glad of that, he said, for now I can take the whole estate. The law will give it to me. Exmoor, it seems, was white as ashes, but his eyes still blazed. The law will give it to you, he said, but you will not take it. Why not? Why? Because it would mean the crack of doom for me, and if you take it, I shall take off my wig. Why, you pitiful plucked fowl! Anyone can see your bare head, but no man shall see mine and live. Well, you may say what you like, and make it mean what you like. But Mel swears it is the solemn fact that the lawyer— after shaking his knotted fists in the air for an instant, simply ran from the room, and never reappeared in the countryside. And since then Exmoor has been feared more for a warlock than even for a landlord and a magistrate. Now Dr. Mull told his story with rather wild theatrical gestures, and with passion, I think, at least partisan. I was quite conscious of the possibility that the whole was the extravagance of an old braggart and gossip. 
But before I end this half of my discoveries, I think it due to Dr. Mull to record that my first two inquiries have confirmed his story. I learn from an old apothecary in the village that there was a bald man in evening dress, giving the name of Green, who came to him one night to have a three-cornered cut on his forehead plastered. And I learnt from the legal records and old newspapers that there was a lawsuit threatened, and at least begun, by one Green against the Duke of Exmoor. Mr. Nutt of the Daily Reformer wrote some highly incongruous words across the top of the copy, made some highly mysterious marks down the side of it, and called to Miss Barlow in the same loud, monotonous voice, Take down a letter to Mr. Finn. Dear Finn, your copy will do, but I have had to headline it a bit, and our public would never stand a Romanist priest in the story. You must keep your eye on the suburbs. I have altered him to Mr. Brown, a spiritualist. Yours, E. Nutt. A day or two afterwards found the active and judicious editor examining, with blue eyes that seemed to grow rounder and rounder, the second instalment of Mr. Finn's tale of Mysteries in High Life. It began with the words, I have made an astounding discovery. I freely confess it is quite different from anything I expected to discover, and will give a much more practical shock to the public. I venture to say, without any vanity, that the words I now write will be read all over Europe, and certainly all over America and the colonies. And yet I heard all I have to tell before I left this same little wooden table in this same little wood of apple-trees. I owe it all to the small priest Brown. He's an extraordinary man. The big librarian had left the table, perhaps ashamed of his long tongue, perhaps anxious about the storm in which his mysterious master had vanished. Anyway, he betook himself heavily in the Duke's tracks through the trees. Father Brown had picked up one of the lemons and was eyeing it with an odd pleasure. What a lovely colour a lemon is, he said. There's one thing I don't like about the Duke's wig, the colour. I don't think I understand, I answered. I dare say he's got good reason to cover his ears, like King Midas, went on the priest, with a cheerful simplicity which somehow seemed rather flippant under the circumstances. I can quite understand that it's nicer to cover them with hair than with brass plates or leather flaps. But if he wants to use hair, why doesn't he make it look like hair? There never was a hair of that colour in this world. It looks more like a sunset cloud coming through the wood. Why doesn't he conceal the family curse better if he's really so ashamed of it? Shall I tell you? It's because he isn't ashamed of it. He's proud of it. It's an ugly wig to be proud of, and an ugly story, I said. Consider, replied this curious little man, how you yourself really feel about such things. I don't suggest you're either more snobbish or more morbid than the rest of us, but don't you feel in a vague way that a genuine old family curse is rather a fine thing to have? Would you be ashamed, wouldn't you be a little proud, if the heir of the Glam's horror called you his friend, or if Byron's family had confided to you only the evil adventures of their race? Don't be too hard on the aristocrats themselves, if their heads are as weak as ours would be and they are snobs about their own sorrows. By Jove, I cried, and that's true enough. My own mother's family had a banshee, and now I come to think of it, it has comforted me in many a cold hour. 
And think, he went on, of that stream of blood and poison that spurted from his thin lips the instant you so much as mentioned his ancestors. Why should he show every stranger over such a chamber of horrors unless he's proud of it? He doesn't conceal his wig, he doesn't conceal his blood, he doesn't conceal his family curse, he doesn't conceal the family crimes, but... The little man's voice changed so suddenly, he shut his hands so sharply, and his eyes so rapidly grew rounder and brighter like a waking owl's, that it had all the abruptness of a small explosion on the table. But, he ended, he does really conceal his toilet. It somehow completed the thrill of my fanciful nerves, that at that instant the Duke appeared again silently among the glimmering trees, with soft foot and sunset-hued hair, coming around the corner of the house in company with his librarian. Before he came within earshot, Father Brown had added quite composedly, Why does he really hide the secret of what he does with a purple wig? Because it isn't the sort of secret we suppose. The Duke came round the corner and resumed his seat at the head of the table with all his native dignity. The embarrassment of the librarian left him hovering on his hind legs like a huge bear. The Duke addressed the priest with great seriousness. "'Father Brown,' he said, "'Dr. Mull informs me that you have come here to make a request. I no longer profess an observance of the religion of my fathers, but for their sakes and for the sake of the days when we met before, I am very willing to hear you, but I presume you would rather be heard in private.' Whatever I retain of the gentleman made me stand up. Whatever I have attained of the journalist made me stand still. Before this paralysis could pass, the priest had made a momentarily detaining motion. If, he said, your grace will permit me my real petition, or if I retain any right to advise you, I would urge that as many people as possible should be present. All over this country I have found hundreds, even of my faith and flock, whose imaginations are poisoned by the spell which I implore you to break. I wish we could have all Devonshire here to see you do it. To see me do what? asked the Duke, arching his eyebrows. To see you take off your wig, said Father Brown. The Duke's face did not move, but he looked at his petitioner with a glassy stare, which was the most awful expression I have ever seen on a human face. I could see the librarian's great legs wavering under him like the shadows of stems in a pool, and I could not banish from my own brain the fancy that the trees all around us were filling softly in the silence with devils instead of birds. "'I spare you,' said the Duke, in a voice of inhuman pity. "'I refuse. If I gave you the faintest hint of the load of horror I have to bear alone, you would lie shrieking at these feet of mine and begging to know no more.' I will spare you the hint. You shall not spell the first letter of what is written on the altar of the unknown God. I know the unknown God, said the little priest, with an unconscious grandeur of certitude that stood up like a granite tower. I know his name. It is Satan. The true God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I say to you, wherever you find men ruled merely by mystery, it is the mystery of iniquity. If the devil tells you something is too fearful to look at, look at it. If he says something is too terrible to hear, hear it. If you think some truth unbearable, bear it. I entreat your grace to end this nightmare now and here at this table. 
"'If I did,' said the Duke, in a low voice, "'you and all you believe, and all by which alone you live, "'would be the first to shrivel and perish. "'You would have an instant to know the great nothing before you died.' "'The cross of Christ be between me and harm,' said Father Brown. "'Take off your wig.' I was leaning over the table in ungovernable excitement. In listening to this extraordinary duel, half a thought had come into my head. "'Your Grace,' I cried, "'I call your bluff. Take off your wig, or I will knock it off.' "'I suppose I can be prosecuted for assault, but I am very glad I did it.' When he said, in the same voice of stone, "'I refuse,' I simply sprang on him. For three long instants he strained against me, as if he had all hell to help him but I forced his head until the hairy cap fell off it. I admit that, whilst wrestling, I shut my eyes as it fell. I was awakened by a cry from Mull, who was also by this time at the Duke's side. His head and mine were both bending over the bald head of the wigless Duke. Then the silence was snapped by the librarian exclaiming, "'What can it mean? Why, the man had nothing to hide. His ears are just like everybody else's.' "'Yes,' said Father Brown. "'That's what he had to hide.' The priest walked straight up to him, but, strangely enough, did not even glance at his ears. He stared with an almost comical seriousness at his bald forehead, and pointed to a three-cornered cicatrice, long-heeled but still discernible. "'Mr. Green, I think,' he said politely. And he did get the whole estate, after all. And now let me tell the readers of the Daily Reformer what I think the most remarkable thing in the whole affair. This transformation scene, which will seem to you as wild and purple as a Persian fairy tale, has been, except for my technical assault, strictly legal and constitutional from its beginnings. The man with the odd scar and the ordinary ears is not an impostor, though in one sense he wears another man's wig and claims another man's ear. He has not stolen another man's coronet. He really is the one and only Duke of Exmoor. What happened was this. The old Duke really had a slight malformation of the ear, which really was more or less hereditary. He really was morbid about it, and it is likely enough that he did invoke it as a kind of curse in the violent scene, which undoubtedly happened, in which he struck Green with the decanter. But the contest ended very differently. Green pressed his claim and got the estates. The dispossessed nobleman shot himself and died without issue. After a decent interval, the beautiful English government revived the extinct peerage of Exmoor and bestowed it, as is usual, on the most important person, the person who's got the property. This man used the old feudal fables, properly in his snobbish soul, really envied and admired them, so that thousands of poor English people trembled before a mysterious chieftain with an ancient destiny and a diadem of evil stars, when they are really trembling before a gutter-snipe who was a pettifogger and a pawnbroker not twelve years ago. I think it is very typical of the real case against our aristocracy as it is, and it will be till God sends us braver men. Mr. Nutt put down the manuscript and called out with unusual sharpness, Miss Barlow, please take down a letter to Mr. Finn. Dear Finn, you must be mad. We can't touch this. I wanted vampires and the bad old days and aristocracy hand in hand with superstition. They like that. 
but you must know the Exmoors would never forgive this. And what would our people say then, I should like to know why, Sir Simon is one of Exmoor's greatest pals, and it would ruin that cousin of the heirs that's standing for us at Bradford. Besides, old Soapsuds was sick enough at not getting his peerage last year. He'd sack me by wire if I lost him it with such lunacy as this. And what about Duffy? He's doing us some rattling articles on the heel of the Norman, and how can he write about Normans if the man's only a solicitor? Do be reasonable. Yours, E. Nutt. As Miss Barlow rattled away cheerfully, he crumpled up the copy and tossed it into the waste-paper basket. But not before he had, automatically and by force of habit, altered the word God to the word circumstances. End of chapter.